Blog Talk Radio.
Don't expect it will be the last one overall, but it's going to be. Uh, the only one we have planned right now. We got to confer calendars between us and the Yeah, it'll be probably it'll be a, a little while before we uh, are able to get another one on the calendar for everybody. But um, yeah, our uh, John Marshall House tour for February is uh, up for sale. I think that's February 19th, yep. and then our uh, likewise our last pop oh. pop for this winter season is also on the calendar for February 26th. So. Definitely. Um, but let's get to what everybody is here for. Yeah, we got service for you tonight. Birthday, birthday. birthday countdown Wednesday. Happy birthday early. Yeah, happy early birthday, Glenn. So I got the unsaw birthday, but I'm looking at the very tiny script yep. right there, and there's in the head, but not quite in the camera. Yep. So yeah. So anyway, so these, this uh, this whole thing tonight, ghost ships. It's going to be something a little, uh, a little. Um, there's going to be some paranormal stuff discussed, but it's also some legend, largely more legend and kind of um, almost a real world stuff that kind of defies convention, defies reasoning, and that in and of itself, when the truth is kind of stranger than fiction, kind of sending a chill down your spine. So. Uh, yeah, we got a few stories so along those lines that we're going to be sharing with you tonight. And uh, I'm, I'm oh. going to let you start just in case she's late. Because so uh, okay. right. <laughs> she's looking like she's ready to start moving. And thanks, David. Yeah, we love our fireplace, too. It is cozy here behind us. <laughs> and supplemented with our furnace, uh, it keeps it fairly comfortable for us all. But, so yeah, anyway, the stories of, and here's Yuna. I'm right there, Yuna. <laughs> <laughs> Stories of ghost ships and legends of the sea have troubled sailors since the beginning of human memory. Now, when we talk about ghost ships, we can be talk, talking about a couple different things. There are these spooky supernatural tales that we dive into most often, but there are also the abandoned vessels that sit empty, if not forgotten. If you're from the area, you might be familiar with the ghost fleet that has been anchored on the James River for many years. While not all paranormal, the eerie nature of these abandoned vessels lends themselves to superstition amongst the sailors who gaze on them as they jerk by on their way to ports around the world. As far as the paranormal goes, images of spectral ships manned by the undead have long existed in folklore around the world. From Samuel Taylor Coolidge's haunting rhyme of the ancient mariner to modern depictions such as in the blockbuster movies, of the Caribbean. Uh, in, real wor- in real world, sightings of such vessels have traditionally been considered bad omens among seafarers, who traditionally believe such paranormal sightings are a warning that their own vessels are about to meet the watery doom. Whether or not paranormal in nature, we do have a collection of stories that have been giving mariners shudders for generations. So we're going to start off, off the west coast of Canada just a little to the southwest of Vancouver Island. On January 22, 1906, the SS Valencia was transporting passengers from San Francisco to Seattle when she went off course and struck a reef. Despite being less than 100 yards from shore, the scene on board was pandemonium. Against the orders of the captain, lifeboats were frantically lowered towards the frigid waters, none of them with adequate crew aboard. 
Several of the lifeboats were flipped before hitting the water, dumping their occupants into the ocean. And of the three lifeboats that were successfully launched, two capsized and one simply disappeared. Some few men managed to get uh, to shore to, uh, and attempted to summon help, while a few lingering survivors clung to the wreckage on the reef. Unfortunately, their efforts were in vain. Rescuers could not approach the vessel as it sat lodged on the reef, and the weather threatened to dash other vessels against the reef, and there was nothing that could be done from the shore. The would-be rescuers could do nothing but watch as the last few helpless survivors that clung to the wreckage were eventually claimed by the sea. Only 37 men amongst the crew and passengers survived. None of the women and children made it. Despite being claimed by the sea, tales of the SS Valencia had carried on in the years since. Fishermen in the area have claimed as long as the ship still sail, with skeletons on deck and men in the stations. While these sightings are unsettling, there is one bit of physical evidence that lingered on that is even more puzzling and even more horrifying when you ponder its possible origin. In 1933, 27 years after the disaster, the Valencia's lifeboat number five was found floating in Barclay Sound, just a few short miles from where the Valencia was lost. The lifeboat was in remarkably good condition, even having most of its paint intact. How this lifeboat survived in such condition for so long defies logic, and one can't help but wonder about those who would have sought salvation aboard the small craft in the Valencia's final moment. If you're interested in seeing a small piece of this history, the nameplate from the boat can now be seen on display in the Maritime Museum of British Columbia. It, yeah, it, I, skeleton crew. Skeleton crews and lifeboat. I mean, just, just floating out there for 27 years. And still have paint stuff. Yeah. Something just, mm, by logic, by reason. You wonder what portal it was through. So next we're going to dive far off to the south, uh, where off the coast of Chile you can find the Coli Archaeological. The uh, people who live on these islands are isolated from the mainland and are forced by circumstances independent and their island society evolved and developed around the natural resources of their environment and being island coast, is a big part of their lives. They evolved in their own ways of explaining the world, which grew into their own unique mythology and folklore, and many of the stories revolve around the waters that surround them. One of those stories is how, uh, tells how the sea is kept clear of all the dead bodies of those who are drowned. So those who are lost in the ocean are set to board a ghostly ship known as El Calucci so that they may travel on to eternity. The phantom ship is said to have been a living being that is always awake and on its guard against unwanted intruders. It appears as a three-masted ship with a shining white hull. It blazes with light from all of its windows and the sound of music and reverie is heard floating across the water as if some great celebration is on the way. Some who have seen it have tried to get near it, but it disappears as soon as anyone gets too close. 
The shepherds had to have two distinct groups of beings on board. There are the dead who are lost to the ocean, but have since been brought back to life to prove the vessel. There are also the supernatural beings, the pilchot mythology who seems to be commanding. The origins of the legend are uncertain, but perhaps the El Calucci is a distant memory on the early Spanish ships of the eastern explorers and adventurers who sailed around the southern tip of South America and then northwards up the coast on their voyages and exploration. Such ships must have been an awesome sight to see these people, especially if it was lit up at night and would probably have made a lasting impression appearing as if they were from another world. Which, to the islanders, they were. Just a second. Just a second. I just want to make sure I don't miss any questions. Uh, question I had. So where do I sign up to join the skeleton crew when I die? Is there a long waiting list? I mean, maybe Joseph Walker's probably takes one. Okay. And other than that, Yuna has, of course, still on the show. Well, we told her she was. As she does. Which is why she's spreading this to Ronaldo House. And we said that you're seeing Beijing on the fever on the show. Doesn't quite believe it's going to be. Okay. Moving on. Moving along. So, uh, Southern Hemisphere, off to Chile. Chile is really, that's an area that we haven't seen. I don't know if you've ever touched on that area before. Not very many tales from South America in general. Not that I found that rabbit hole yet. Just saying. Yeah. By the way, Alex Nike sent me on a wonderful rabbit hole the other day. Yes. Uh, and there is a show. <laughs> yes. We will touch on that at the end. But yes. So, anyways, from there, we are going to, I and I had to look this up. I blanked on it. Uh, Cape Horn. Mm-hmm. I want to keep thinking Cape Could Hope, but that is um, Africa. Okay. No, Cape Horn. Cape Horn the southern tip of South America, will sail around Cape Horn and proceed up into the Atlantic Ocean. We'll also dive back in time a few hundred years to February 13, 1748, when the Lady Lullabon, name? Lullabon. Lullabon. Sounds like something from James Bond. Sounds like a Rick Smith character. And this was uh, mid-1700s. Even better. <laughs> Anyway, that's anyway, just distracted by fun names. Lady, Lady Lumbar. Now, this was a three-masted schooner left, and it left port for a leisurely sail along the Thames River near Kent, England, with the final destination of a port to Portugal. Now, Captain Simon Reed had just been married and brought his new wife, Anita, with him for a honeymoon voyage. Now, if you're familiar with mid-18th century superstition, you might be getting a little bit of a tingle here already about the tale that has come. And that's because of the many superstitions of the era. Uh, there was one that it was bad luck for a woman to be aboard a ship as a sail. Yes, they named the ship after early. Yes. Now, here's the thing about this superstition. Um, you, you, superstition certainly brings people in this during the time Of course, we know that women were on sailing ships for, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of years before that. Uh, and uh, it wasn't 
so much so, um, you know, that there was really any kind of bad luck involved. It was more of a way for the men to try and explain away some of their own personal weaknesses because it wasn't the issue that the women were bad luck as much as it was that they could not be a group. Yeah, well, I mean... I got a better distraction. Yeah. <laughs> now, that said, Captain Reed and Anita were unconcerned. They were close with many members of the crew, and on the day of the sailing, they were all below deck celebrating, except for the ship's bosun and the first mate, John Rivers. Although Rivers had served as the best man at the wedding, he was also in love with the beautiful bride. Minor distraction. The more he thought of her, the more jealous he became, until finally, unable to bear his anger any longer, he took action. The ship was passing a notorious stretch of the English Channel called the Goodwin Sands. Now, the Goodwin Sands is a nine-mile stretch between Kingstown, Kent, and Pegwell Bay, and is still one of the most dangerous passages of the English Channel. The conditions change quickly as the tides change and sediment moves around as the water rushes through the Straits of Dover. During low tide, as much as one-tenth of the total area can be exposed and you can walk on the sediment. Over 1,000 wrecks have been recorded in this area since 1298 and has become a virtual ship's graveyard. Frequently, when ships attempt to sail through a high tide, the sediment quickly moves and sucks the ship down into the sand with only the stern, with the stern only partially supported. This breaks the ship's back, rendering it unable to sail once the tide comes back in, leaving the vessel and its passengers to face a watery fate. As the Lady Love Bomb passed through the area, Rivers attacked the bosun and took over the ship. He intentionally stirred the ship into the Goodland Sands, destroying the ship and killing everyone on board. Exactly 50 years to the day after the Lady Lullabon was destroyed, in the year 1798, another ship, the Edinburgh, was sailing through the area. The captain of the ship recorded in his log that he had almost collided with a schooner with three masts as it bore down on the Golden Sand. He recorded sounds of celebration coming from the ship as it collided with the sand and broke up. A rescue team was dispatched but could find no sign of the ship or or its passenger. Another 50 years passed, and again on 13th of February, 1848, locals saw a three-masted schooner heading towards the sand. Again, no evidence of wreckage was found. The same thing happened again in 1898, and the last report was filed in 1948 by Captain Bull Presswick. He was convinced he saw a ship that was described as the Lady Lovabond, but was surrounded by a grain below as it entered the sand. The folk tales of the ship created so much tension that many curious onlookers made their way to the sand in 1998 to catch a glimpse of the legendary ship, but were all disappointed when no ship appeared. Were the tales made up to entertain the gullible, or were the reports made by people who actually believed that they saw the Lady Lullabon on its way to its watery grave every 50 years? But another 26 years, and we can go back to go and check it out. And, uh, Mom, to answer your question, that's Nico. I have Vincent right here. He wants to get to And for those of you that heard him, he was calling up in the chairs because he likes the sound of his echo. 
he's a screamer. He is a screamer. <laughs> and he usually won't stop until we scream what back. <laughs> and now we want to play touch with his ginger bit. He looks so cozy about the fire alarm cuddles from both of you. Deceptively sweet, a good strategy to make you get your guard down. So you yeah. have the truth. And you all saw him get my finger. That was his love chomp. Yep. Didn't draw blood, but love chomp, as he's doing right now. go. All right, so we're going to talk about the Octavius. Uh, this is actually is in the Northern Hemisphere, but maybe a little too far north. The story opens in 1761 with the Octavius docked in the port of London to take on cargo destined for China. The ship left port with a full crew and the skipper and his wife and son. They arrived safely in China and unloaded their cargo. They headed back out to sea once she was loaded with goods destined for the British shores. But as the weather was unusually warm, the captain decided to sail home via the Northwest Passage a voyage that at the time had not been accomplished. This was the last that anyone heard of vessels, her crew, or her cargo. Octavius was declared lost. Fast forward 14 years, and on October 11th of 1775, the whaling ship Herald was working the frigid waters off Greenland when it spotted a sailing ship. On the nearing the ship, the crew saw that the ship was weather-beaten, the sails were tattered and torn, and hanging limply on the mast. The captain and Harold ordered a boarding party to search the vessel. They had determined was, of course, the Octavia. The boarding party arrived on deck to find the converted. They broke open the ship's hatch and scrambled down the ladder to the semi-darkness below, where a terrifying sight met their eyes. They found the entire 28-man crew frozen to death in their quarters. In the captain's cabin, they found the captain seated at his desk, a pen in hand, the ship's blossoms opened on the desk in front of him. The inkwell and other day, everyday items were still in their place on the desk. Turning around, they saw a woman wrapped in a blanket on a bunk, frozen to death, along with the body of a young boy. The boarding party was terrified. Grabbing the ship's logs, they fled from the Octavius. Their mad flight, excuse me, in their mad flight, they lost the middle pages of the logbook that were frozen solid and came loose from the book binding. They arrived back on the Herald with just the first and last pages of the log book, which were enough for the master of the Herald to determine at least part of the story of the voyage. The captain of the Octavius had tried to navigate the Northwest Passage, but his ship had become imprisoned in the ice of the Arctic. The entire crew had perished. The ship's last reported position was 75 north, 160 west which placed the Octavius 250 miles north of Barrow, Alaska. As the Octavius had been found off the coast of Greenland, it must have broken loose from the ice at some stage and completed its voyage through the passage to come out the other side, where it met the Herald. Crew of the Herald were frightened of the Octavius and feared that it was cursed, so they simply left it adrift. To this day, it has never been sighted again. <laughs> Did you see who was going on behind? I have no idea. <laughs> I'm assuming kittens. You'll have to catch it on replay. Okay. Yeah, the kittens are definitely well stirred up. They're today. getting wound. They, yeah, they're getting really wound up. <laughs> so, all right. 
Now, so uh, while still around today, the Hudson's Bay Company bears little resemblance to the company that it once was. A company with a long nautical history from respectable steamers and schooners to some to humble canoes. The majority of Hudson's Bay Company travel and transport took place on water, and unfortunately this correlates to a number of lost vessels during the company's years in operation. Over 10 ships from the Hudson's Bay Company fleet met tragic ends, including the Bay Chimna, Bay, Bay Chimna yeah, a steamer based in the Atlantic Western Arctic. While the other lost ships have well-documented endings, how the Bay Chimno met her end remains one of the biggest mysteries in Hudson's Bay Company history. Designed and built in Gothenburg, Sweden in 1914, she was originally christened Anger Mantelin. Yeah, it's Swedish. And after one of Sweden's long rivers, Angerman. It's spelled just like Angerman with with a couple of those accent things that Swedes do that I might be completely butchering this pronunciation. Probably. But anyways, with that said, we're trying. Ve- yeah, we're trying. <laughs> the vessel had a steel hull and was 230 feet long and was powered by a triple expansion steam engine. She was also outfitted with schooner rigging. Anchor Manfoling launched in 1914 and was used as a trading vessel for her German owners around the Baltic Sea. The ship continued to serve Germany's Baltic coast through World War I, protected by the Imperial German Navy. Following the Great War, Anger Mantelin was ceded to the British government by Germany in 1920 as part of the war reparations negotiated at the Treaty of Versailles. Add the little section that says Germany recognizes the rights of the Allied and associated powers to the replacement ton for ton and class for class of all merchant ships and fishing boats lost and damaged owing to the war. So, yeah. Consequently, all German ships over 800 tons were confiscated and divided evenly between France, Great Britain, and the U.S. That's a lot of tons. Yep. There's a whole lot of subsequent history that we can dive into there that will save for. It's not paranormal. Maybe not for these shows. Can you talk about the one? Oh, yeah, no. I'm talking about the the fallout of... um, Oh, yeah. Where was the Treaty of Versailles maybe a little too harsh and set the stage for World War II? Yeah. A whole other discussion. Anyways, moving on. Consequently, uh, yeah, yeah. Anchor Manfalon sailed out of the Baltic Sea for the last time by a British crew destined for London where she was put up for sale to commercial interests. The Hudson's Bay Company purchased her for 15,000 pounds and she was renamed Bay Chimno, uh, joining the company's fleet of cargo ships. Her first voyage for Hudson's Bay Company took place in 1921 where she served in the Eastern Arctic in conjunction with the establishment of a small outpost named Pond Inlet. Now, if you look up Pond Inlet on Google Maps, it's going to take you way, way up north. Way up north. Way up there. And the following year, the Beijing was sent to Siberia, which actually may be marginally warmer than Pond Inlet, just to kind of put it in perspective, with Captain Sidney Cornwell at the helm. Cornwall enlisted, enlisted with Hudson's Bay Company to serve as master of the Bay Chimno at the onset of the Kamchatka Venture in 1922. 
The Kamchatka venture aims to create first in Siberia, but a changing political climate, aka the formation of the Soviet Union, caused the Hudson's Bay Company to withdraw after only two years. Following the dissolution of the Kamchatka venture, the Bay Chimno was reassigned to the Western Arctic, traveling between Vancouver, Hudson's Bay Company of Outposts along the Yukon and Northwest Territories, and Royal Canadian Mountain Police Station and Missionary Posts between 1924 and 1931. Her typical role was carrying cargo, but she would sometimes take on a small number of passengers as well. These passengers would pay for their passage by taking on small roles around the ship, making them short-term de facto crew members. On average, the Chimno had a crew of 32 people. Now, in late September 1931, on her way back to Vancouver, the Bechimno was surprised by a blizzard at the Seahorse Islands near Point Barrow on Alaska's northern coast, and the crew was forced to anchor the Bechimno to weather the storm. It soon became apparent that the steamer was caught in ice and would have to overwinter in the Arctic. Using parts of the ship, the crew began construction on winter accommodations for the crew that would remain behind the ship until spring. The large Bechimno couldn't be heated all winter long, so the wooden and snow structure was a warmer and safer alternative. The crew removed food and other supplies from the vessel as it set camp. Her passengers and some of her crew were flown to Kotzbuli, uh, Alaska, and on to Vancouver. Maintenance of the ship's rudder was a daily chore for the remaining crew, keeping ice from building up around this critical piece of equipment. At the end of November, another storm swept through, and when it cleared, the Bechimno was gone. The captain and crew assumed that the vessel had sunk, and they soon received word that an Inuit hunter had spotted the Bechimno once again packed in ice roughly 72 kilometers south of their encampment. Captain Cornwell and the crew made their way to the Bechimno and boarded the vessel, removing a large quantity of furs and abandoning the ship for the last time determining that she was no longer seaworthy after ricocheting solo through the icy waters of the Beaufort Sea. Furthermore, the Bechimno was caught in the ice once again, so she wouldn't be going anywhere anytime soon, right? Right? <laughs> Captain Cornwell and the remaining crew were flown back to Vancouver in March of 1932, where paperwork was filed for the loss of the vessel and the negligible cargo left on board. Shortly thereafter, the Bechimno was spotted again, but a gout about 480 kilometers to the east of where the crew had last seen her. The following March, March, she was seen floating peacefully near the shore of Alaska by Leslie Melvin, a man traveling to Nome with his dog sled team. In the decades that followed, many people would spot the Bechimno, now dubbed the ghost ship of the Arctic, as she traveled long unencumbered by crew and cargo. In March 1933, she was found by a group of indigenous Alaskans who traveled to her, boarded her, and were trapped aboard for about 10 days by an unexpected storm. In the summer of 1933, she was boarded by the crew and passenger of the trader, a small schooner from Nome, Alaska. The crew of the trader reported that at the same time, a group of Inuit uh, boarded the ship, having traveled out to her to remove mattresses, chairs, and other items like this show tarpaulins, and other various goods from the vessel. The following day, the Bechimno had once again disappeared, although trader crew members repeatedly spotted her hurrying north in her private ice pan. Later in their journey towards Herschel Island, in, later in their, her journey towards Herschel Island in Yukon, sorry, I paused in the wrong place. <laughs> in September 1935, 
she was seen off Alaska's northwest coast. In November 1939, she was boarded by Captain Hugh Polson, wishing to salvage her, but the creeping ice flows intervened and the captain had to abandon her. This was the last recorded boarding of the Chinook. After 1939, she was seen floating alone and without crew numerous times, but had always eluded capture. Recorded sightings slowed during World War II and in the subsequent years. In March 1962, she was seen drifting along the Beaufort Sea coast by another group of Inuits. Finally, 38 years after she was abandoned, she was found frozen in an ice pack in 1969 between Icy Cape and Barrow. This was the last recorded sighting of a Chinook. In 2006, the Alaskan government began work on a project to solve the mystery of the ghost ship of the Arctic and to find an estimated 4,000 ships lost along the coast of Alaska. She has not yet been found, but given that 50 years have elapsed since her last sighting, it is likely that this time the Bay Chimno is finally resting at the bottom of the Beaufort Sea. Although the Bay Chimno's impact on Hudson's Bay Company operations was fairly uneventful, her legacy as the ghost ship of the Arctic is one that persists in the narrative of the company's history. While the ship has likely gone to the bottom of the sea, a few many remaining traces of the Big Chimno linger on at the University of Alaska Museum of the North. You see, when the crew of the trader boarded in 1933, they scavenged a few trinkets that had been left on board. These were gifted to Otto Geist, a now legendary Alaska collector and naturalist who was doing work on St. Lawrence Island. Upon his return to Fairbanks, Geist brought the artifacts to the museum. There the artifacts sat for decades, hidden in a drawer. They were rediscovered in 2015 when the museum curator was browsing the museum's collection doors for something a little different to share with his students. The Bay Chimno and her enduring mystery certainly fits the bill. Okay, Gary. Interesting. Can you imagine a ship just randomly floating out there at sea, unencumbered, without direction for decades? Sadly, yes, up there. Mm -hmm. I can cold that happened today. Cold. Very cold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Patrick, share the link that will take you to Google Maps to show you where Pond Inlet is. And yeah, it's way up there. Somehow, some way, apparently there's about 1,500 people living there today, year-round. What do we believe? May <laughs> I suggest we go to the um, hybrid island instead? The hybrid? Yeah. Okay. Any other questions? Yeah, we'll try to way to open a can of worms. Yep. I'll we're gonna we're gonna let that lie for tonight. Maybe another occasion. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. When, when everybody feels like being bored to tears and, um, very, and, and, and very and very sad all at the same time. Except we don't talk about Bruno. We don't talk about politics. That's kind of a, a niche reference to a relatively new movie. If you haven't seen it, can't have it. <laughs> and if we don't talk about Bruno, we'll be stuck in the head forever. It's the new Earworm. Let it go. It's the new Earworm. All right. Carrying on. Mary Celeste. Let's talk about the Mary Celeste. So we'll be back down to a warmer climate now because it's been a little too cold. 
Uh, we're going to find ourselves in the mid-Atlantic, about a thousand miles off the coast of Portugal. Here, the Azores lie, a beautiful uh, island chain that's full of wondrous sights. It's got all my consonants and vowels in there. And, of course, mysterious tales. On December 4th of 1872, a ship was found unmanned and abandoned in otherwise beautiful sailing condition. And that ship's name was the Mary Celeste. The ship was relatively new, only having been launched from Nova Scotia shipyard in 1861 and under the name Amazon. However, in its early years, the vessel's owners encountered a series of accidents with the vessel uh, trading hands quite frequently in this country. Lives of three captains were also lost, which further added to the negative reputation gained by the vessel. The vessel did manage to have a successful voyage, though the negativity far outweighed the success. In the year 1867, the vessel was salvaged to a New York company and consequently rechristened as the Mary Celeste and was put under the skippering of Captain Benjamin Briggs. Along with Captain Briggs and his family, wife and daughter, the ship had a crew of eight people. Incidentally, Captain Briggs was also one of the four stakeholders who held the newly transported stock, uh, joint stock ownership of the Mary Celeste. The mystery of the Mary Celeste soon starts after the ship was tasked with the transportation of about 1,700 alcohol casks through the Italian province of Genoa in the year of 1872. The vessel, which departed as per her schedule on November 7th of 1872, did not reach the Genesee port at all. When uh, found, she was still under sail, the crew's personal belongings were intact, and the cargo was untouched. The only thing missing for the lifeboat, the captain's logbook, and again, most importantly, the entire crew. Untouched loot ruled out a pirate attack, leaving several unnatural uh, theories, such as the crew mutiny, a deadly water spout, some technical issue, or perhaps consumption of poisonous food, leading to madness amongst the crew. The more paranormal theories, alien abduction, that is what I Ah, Bermuda Triangle, one of my favorites. Sea monsters, and other wild hypotheses. <laughs> because why not? Oddly enough, I do have to mention we are not actually going to be diving in depth into anything to do with the Bermuda Triangle tonight. No, that's going to be another show all in itself. We have one more story that ultimately did not make a cut for tonight. It was four thousand words on this one. Yeah, it needs extensive editing, and um, yeah, it would basically almost. Making out the show. Yeah, so we're going to work on that and bring back a ghost ship's... Uh, Bermuda Triangle part two. thing. <laughs> yeah. With that said, carry on, Mary Fuller. <laughs> Another vessel, the Via Gracia, was one, the one who discovered the Mary Celeste and to subsequently claim her as salvage. The crew managed to limp the Mary Celeste to a port in Gibraltar, where her fate was hung up in salvage port. Salvage court hearings began December 17th of 1872 and was conducted by Frederick Solipwood. Solipwood. Okay. He was the Attorney General of Gibraltar. Flood was described as a historian of the Mary Celeste, an affair of, as a man whose arrogance and promiscuity were inversely proportional to his IQ. Not promiscuity. Compass-cuity? You did not write that. Compass-cuity. Compass, no. 
spell check. <laughs> anyway. He's a little paperclip guy. <laughs> um, anyway. Anyway. Edison was the sort of man who, once he's made up his mind about something, can't be shifted. The testimonies of the Zegraka crew convinced Flood unalterably that the crime had been committed despite the lack of evidence. With nothing concrete to support his suspicion, Flood reluctantly released the Mary Flesh from the court's jurisdiction on February 25th. The question of the salvage payment was decided on April 8th, and on the award of 1,700 pounds, or about one-fifth the total of the value of the ship and cargo, was announced. This is far lower than the general expectation. One authority thought that the award should have been twice or even three times as much that amount. Given the letter, level of hazard the crew uh, faced in bringing the derelict into port. In a classic case of no good deed goes unpunished, the captain and the crew of the Delgrafia, uh, excuse me, Degrafia, were left with a final slap that carried an implication of wrongdoing, which ensured that they would be under suspicion in the court of public opinion forever. While the sailing world has seen ghost shifts in cases, there have been few that were more pleasantly and inexplicable than the case of Mary Celeste. The nature of the mystery has lent it to be the source of many exaggerations and outright false histories. The fact that fiction has become intertwined with fact in the decades that followed, the Los Angeles Times recalled the Mary's story in June of 1883 with an invented detail. Every sail was set, the tiller was lashed fast, not a rope was out of place, the fire was burning in the gallon. The dinner was standing untasted and scarcely cold, the log written up to the hour of her discovery. A week I, of embellishment. I, I call Bia. <laughs> the most influential fictional retelling was an early work by Arthur Conan Doyle, and it was published in January 1884. In Conan Doyle's story, Jay Harbert Justin's statement did not adhere to the facts. He renamed the ship the Mary Celeste. The captain's name was J.W. Tibbs. The fatal voyage took place in 1873, and it was from Boston to Lisbon. The vessels carried the passengers that became embroiled in a violent and sickle hijacking attempt. Tony Doyle had not expected his story to be taken seriously, but the U.S. Consul in Gibraltar was sufficiently intrigued to inquire if any part of the story might be true. In 1913, the Brandon magazine was uh, provided an alleged survivor's account from one able suspect, supposedly Mary Flood Stewart. In this version, the crew had gathered on a temporary swimming platform to watch a swimming contest. When the platform suddenly collapsed, all of the points decks were drowned or eaten by sharks. Unlike the Conan Doyle story, the magazine proposed as a serious solution to the enigma. But it contained many simple mistakes, including the basic ignorance of a nautical language. Many more people were convinced by plausible literary posts of the 1920s as perpetuated by the Irish writer Lawrence J. Keating, and again presented as a survivor story of one John Pemberton. This one told a complex tale of murder, madness, and a collusion with the Del Gracia. It included basic errors such as the using of the name Marie Celeste and misnaming 
see personnel. Nevertheless, the story was so convincingly told that the New York Herald Tribune of uh, that the New York Herald Tribune of July 26 of 1926 thought it true beyond dispute. He described keeping Pope as an impudent trick by a man not without imagination available. Well, the fact that the fiction of the Mary Celeste has collided many times and suggested some others for decades, her ultimate fate is no less scandalous. In November of 1884, under new ownership, the Mary Celeste was filled with largely worthless cargo, which was misrepresented on the ship's manifest as valuable goods, and in turn for many times its actual value. On December 16th, the ship set sail for destined for Haiti. And on January 3rd of 1885, the Mary Celeste approached the port of France. The captain deliberately ran the ship up on a well-known reef, breaking out her bottom and wrecking her beyond repair. The scheme was discovered, and the captain and his co-conspirators were charged with insurance fraud, amongst other crimes. While the criminal charges were ultimately dropped, the professional reputations were ruined, and financial ruin then followed. Thus ended the brief, tumultuous run of the Mary Celeste. That ship was, talk about a, a train wreck. It's a metaphorical train wreck. Train wreck at sea. Just the, the, it just kept going and going. And, and, and it should have been way to rest long before that reef happened. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, as far as the, the whole, you know, the whole, Arthur Conan Doyle thing. It just I, that just. Well, I mean, the thing is, the war of the world. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, that was um. That was radio, but just think of that. Yeah. You know, it was a hoax, but people thoroughly believed it. Yeah. You know, it's just like today. You know, everything that if it's online, it has to be true, right? <laughs> Hundred years ago, if it got printed or if it got spoken on the radio, it had to be true. Pretty true. Oh God. Anyways, so yes, moving on to this. I, I like the name of this ship. So next we come to the inland waters of the United States with the tale of the Eliza Battle. Yes, Eliza Battle. That's a fun name. Now, yes, the Eliza Battle was launched in New Albany, Indiana, in 1852. There was a shipbuilder apparently somewhere in the middle of Indiana back in 1852. Now, a side-wheeled paddle steamer, the wooden-hulled ship had a size of 316 tons. She was operated out of Mobile, Alabama, and was one of the most luxurious riverboats plying the state's waters at that time. At one time, even entertaining former President Millard Fillmore, great Millard Fillmore, during a reception on board the ship in Mobile on April 7, 1854. In the last days of February 1858, captained by S. Graham Stone and with Daniel Epps as pilot, the Eliza Battle departed Columbus, Ohio, only able to negotiate the Tom Bigby River that far north during the regular flooding of the river during the winter months. The ship made its way downriver with stops at Pickensville, Gainesville, Demopolis, and numerous small river landings. By the time that the ship left Demopolis on February 28, 1858, she was fully loaded with passengers and more than 1,200 bales of cotton. During an already cold night, a strong north wind began to blow, with the air temperature decreasing another 40 degrees Fahrenheit in the two hours after nightfall. At roughly 2 a.m. on March 1, 1858, about 32 miles downriver from Demopolis, near Beckins, uh, Beckley's Landing, it was discovered that cotton bales on the main deck 
were on fire. Partially attributed to the strong winds, the fire soon spread out of control. The boat continued downstream out of control. Cut off from the light boats by the plane, the passengers dressed only in their night clothes were forced to seek refuge in the icy river. Some survived by floating atop cotton bales. The Liza battle finally came to rest about Kent's Landing near the modern uh, near the modern Alabama State Route 114 bridge over the river near Pennington. The survivors were rescued by the Magnolia and local residents, with some passengers having to be retrieved from tree troughs, um, tree tops amongst the flooded river. Of the 55 to 60 people on board, 26 people perished in the disaster. All of the casualties were attributed to drowning or exposure to the extreme cold during the night. The ship sank below the waters of Tumbig Beach following the disaster, with the hull of the wreck remaining on the river bottom in 28 feet of water to the present day. In Catherine Tucker Wyndham's 13 Alabama Ghosts in Jeffrey, the disaster in folklore concerning the ghost ship is recorded as the phantom steamboat of the Tumbig Beach. The story roughly follows newspaper accounts of the disaster. It's purported, uh, purported in the story that sightings of the ship tended to happen on cold and windy winter nights, with the ship fully engulfed in flames, appearing on the river near the same locations where the disaster started. It also relates that the sightings are said by rivermen to foretell of impending disaster are an, uh, and are an ill omen to ships still flying the waters of the river. If 13 Alabama Ghosts in Jeffrey relate, people close to the Tom Bigby River sometimes hear music drifting towards them from the water, often accompanied by screams of people begging for rescue. Some people even see the ghost of the Eliza Battle floating down the river towards its never-reached destination, the Mobile. Uh, no new questions. Okay. So the Orang Megan, from the inland waterways of America, we're going to sail to the other end of the globe to the Strait of Malacca in Indonesia. It is here in 1947 that a chilling and mysterious tale unraveled around the Dutch merchant ship, the Orang Megan. The details of this event can be a little scattered, but it said that in June of 1947 that the single rooms of two American traders received a message straight out of a horror movie. The Morris Cove receiver came alive with the usual string of dots and dashes, or dips and dots, as they would sound. Uh, and while the messages were, were the smooth, excuse me, while the message was smooth, the words behind it were not. All officers, including captain, are dying, lying in the chart room and bridge, possibly whole crew dead. A brief pause by more code, this time indecipherable. The nonsense pulses gave way, and a final disturbing message is received. I die. Silence followed. With such urgency in the message, not to mention the desired situation described, an American silver star set off to locate the Iran Medan. Within hours, the Iran Medan came into sight, drifting lazily in the water. For all intents and purposes, the Oran Medan looked completely undamaged. After several attempts to hail the crew when unanswered a decision to board the vessel was made. <laughs> a boarding party was assembled and sent across to see what was going on. 
As the party made their way on deck, they came across a truly bizarre and frightening spectacle. The decks were littered with the bodies of the crew. They lay on their backs, their eyes were open, looking to the sky, and their arms were outstretched towards the sun. Even the ship's dog was found dead. There were no visible injuries found on any of the bodies, nor were there any survivors. Below deck, more bodies were found, including that of the communication officer who had sent the messages that were received by the Silver Star. The captain was found on the bridge, as were his officers. While searching the boiler room of the ship, the party noticed that there was incredibly chilly down there, and the rest of the ship was quite warm, even hot. An investigation was underway, uh, and however, a mysterious fire broke out below deck, and as the boarding party were unable to contain it, they left the ship. Soon after, the ship exploded and sank to the deep. No one would ever know what occurred on that ship and kill off the entire crew. However, just because it's not certain as to what took place, there are certainly plenty of theories. A number of people have theorized that there may have been a cargo hazard, um, including hazardous chemicals on board the ship. Perhaps some salt water had reacted with chemicals, causing gases that asphyxiated the crew. Also, the same reactions may have generated enough heat to start the fire and the subsequent explosion. Perhaps the fire itself is to blame. Carbon monoxide and other noxious smoke and vapors had killed the crew and, of course, resulted in the explosion. Could the crew have been smuggling nerve agents through the Indonesian water? Maybe a leak into the cargo killed the crew. Then, of course, there was a manner of all manner of explanations from the paranormal field. Extraterrestrials, spirits from the deep, curses, anything else you might want to add into this mix. Finally, the most accepted explanation of all, that there never was an around Madden in the first place, and the events started this place, and it's all just a big sea-bound urban legend. That's why not. We love our urban legends all the time. Although some aspects of the story can be proven, that the Silver Star at the time named the Santa Juana was in those waters at the time of the accident incident, and that there had been several records from that time. Uh, there were no published documentations about the event until a full four years after it was the first judge taking place. Regardless, it makes for a big tale, either as an unsolved mystery or an urban legend. Um, Vincent, stop eating your father's Nico. Nico. Oh, sorry, Nico. I'm sorry, Vincent. Yeah, a lot of these stories are definitely, like Patrick mentioned, like something from the Twilight Zone. They a are. lot of these stories are very much Twilight Zone-ish. Yeah, uh, which is why I thought it would be fun to do an entire show on them because, you know. But wait, there's more. <laughs> so we're actually, we are going to stay in the South Pacific as we come to the mystery of the MV Joita. Now, this one we know 100% was absolutely a real boat. It was built in 1931 as a modestly luxurious yacht. It was first owned by Hollywood director Roland West. She was 70 feet long and was constructed of durable cedar and oak. Her early years were uneventful, and she traded hands a couple of times before becoming a part of the U.S. Navy in 1941 when the states entered World War II. She served as a patrol boat around the Hawaiian Islands, 
survived the conflict, and upon the conclusion of hostilities was released from service. Having been stripped of most of its luxurious components, it was picked up as a small cargo hauler and fishing charter in 1948, a role that it would fulfill for the next several years. On October 3rd of 1955, the MV Joyita departed from Apa Harbor in Samoa bound for the Toluku Islands, where she was due to collect a cargo of copra. The journey totaled around 270 miles. Due to problems with the clutch, she left the harbor running on one engine. She carried a crew of 16 plus nine passengers. And despite the hiccup with the clutch, when the MV Joyita set with sail, she was captained by respectable seaman Thomas Henry Dusty Miller, and the others on board would have believed that they were in perfectly capable and competent hands. The journey was supposed to take about 48 hours, but on October 6th, the port of Fakuoko, yeah, it's a mouthful, reported that the ship was late. The operator of the port reported that a distress call had never come. This meant that a rescue party should be released to search for the ship. They searched for six days and covered around 100,000 square miles, but no avail. MV Joeda remained lost. But on November 10th, about a month after she was due in port, a merchant ship named Tuvalu spotted the Joeda partially submerged and drifting more than 600 miles off of her original coast, or course. Excuse me. She was lifting about 20 degrees, her windows were broken, and the bridge had been heavily damaged as if struck by a heavy object. When the crew of the Tuvalu boarded the Joeda, they found an empty ship, no crew and tons of its cargo missing. The radio was jammed at 2182 kilohertz, which was a distress frequency, and there were clues scattered across the ship that seemingly made no sense. For example, the firearms were missing. There were bloody bandages and a scalpel. The logbook was missing. The clocks were stuck at 10.25. The engine was covered with a mattress. I don't know what that's about. And the three lifeboats were missing, and she was still filled with fuel. The ship was uh, taken back to Samoa, and rumors and theories started to fly. A mutiny, a pirate attack. Uh, a panicked escape attempt from the boat all would have been forwarded as explanations for why the droid was abandoned. While some other stories claimed that Japanese involvement was still fresh on the heels of World War II. To this day, no single theory has been confirmed and no trace of its passengers has ever been found. A lingering mystery. Yeah. Yeah, they wouldn't have, uh, wouldn't have done such a number on it. They definitely wouldn't have left the fuel. Yeah. Maybe they, uh, maybe there was something to the, uh, the, the, the Japanese theory. Even though, even though it was about 10 years after the war ended, of course we know that there were some uh, holdouts from the Japanese military scattered on some of those small islands in the South Pacific for decades after the war ended. So who knows? Anything possible. And yes, you heard, yeah, mattress, you heard that correctly. Weird, unless you were really cold and wanted to sleep and wanted head, head up, I guess. Heat up your bed. But yes, interesting tales all around. Yes, well, 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 they were trying to catch the engine on fire to the table, 